0: and suggest future topics and
2: guests.
1: Budai Garg founded Mandala Capital in 2008 and has since been dedicated exclusively to developing the business with a focus on the food and agribusiness sector. Since the firm's inception, he has been involved in all areas of the business and was instrumental in developing its strategy and vision, as well as raising the current funds under management. Uday sits on the board of portfolio companies and manages the relationships with the firm's partners and stockholders. Prior to Mandala Capital, Uday worked at Altima Partners in London, focusing on private investments in global emerging markets across sectors, including agribusiness. He began his career in the investment banking division of Deutsche Bank New York, followed by Portfolio Manager roles at Amaranth Advisors in Connecticut and Duet Group in London. He holds a BS in Economics from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania with a concentration in Finance. Uday, welcome to Harris Brickens' Global Law and Business.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Uday, let's get things
0: started by having you answer a simple question. What is food and agribusiness investing?
2: I think this is a, a good question to start with, because a lot of people read a lot of interesting stuff about food and agriculture, and maybe the uh, the details get lost into into what really it means and I think the the simplest way to think about food and agriculture investing is to first try to picture the value chain from inputs all the way to the to the retail product or the consumer product so You can take any any product, you can take milk, you can take uh, chicken, you can take sugar. So it all starts with the farm. And what goes into the farm is a bunch of inputs. Uh, There's a farmer involved and there's land involved. All of those are investable. And then when that's grown, uh, then it gets processed and all of that is investable, the processing capacity. And then it goes through a logistic system and then it gets finished into a final product and that's an investable product. If you, if you break down the value chain quite simply in the food and agri space, you know, you have upstream, midstream, downstream. When we, when we speak to people, uh, investors, especially we try to relate it to oil and gas, even though it's a little bit more complex, but people tend to know the oil and gas industry a lot better. And so. If you look at upstream, midstream, downstream, and break down the entire chain into these three buckets, it makes it a little bit easier to understand where the the different economics and value chains are. The other important way to think about food and agri is that every product has a different upstream, midstream, downstream, or different value chain. And just to complicate it further, different countries and different geographies have different value chains for different products. So... Maybe an example would help if you take the dairy industry and in the US, that's a very integrated industry, which means you have integration from dairy farmers all the way to the final product. So when you buy milk off the shelf, the company selling you that milk product is sourcing straight from the farm and handling the product all the way through. Whereas if you looked at the dairy business in a place like India, actually the farmer is completely independent. The processor is sometimes also completely independent. And then the company selling you the milk is just a branded company marketing the product. And so I think uh, just to summarize, Understanding the entire value chain, upstream, midstream, downstream, making sure there is an appreciation for different geographies and different value chains and how they behave. And, and once sort of that, that is well understood, only then can people start thinking about, okay, where do I want to be in this value chain? Where can I maximize my return?
1: So you are currently based in Singapore, is that right? That's right. And so your focus, uh, Mandala, at least your focus within Mandala is in Southeast Asia. Do you have people spread around uh, the region? Where does everyone sit? And uh, and does your focus differ from others within within the group?
2: Uh, yeah, so we, we focus on India and Southeast Asia. The investing team is really split into a core investment team, which is guys with with investing experience in finance, and then an operating team, or what we call sector specialists. And the sector specialists are guys with you know, 20, 30 years of operating experience in companies. And while our investment team tends to be sitting together in Singapore and Mumbai, the sector specialist team is much, much more spread out and more in-country. We've got sector specialists in the you know, Philippines, in Indonesia, uh, in India, in Vietnam. And so they help us more on the ground post-investment or even in looking for deals. And so why did
1: you decide to invest in food and agri? Uh, and then why, particularly in India and Southeast Asia, how does that region compare with the rest of the world? I mean, I know just from a straight human capital standpoint and uh, and consumer standpoint, I mean, that's a, a massive part of the world's population. It's a, it's a big gravity center. So um, I would think that, uh, you know, intellectually, I can figure out some reasons why, but I'd love to hear it from your point of view.
2: Uh, yeah, I think um, it's actually, it's quite basic in some ways, just to keep it simple, you know, I think of it as supply demand and supply demand imbalances. If you look at demand, which is what you alluded to, which which I think most people know, there's the biggest population in that region. If you combine India southeast Asia, you know you're you're uh, more than a third of the population I think you've got rising GDP per capita, you've got um, you know big middle class, you've got a huge number of young people so So there's no doubt um, that the demand in that region is tremendous um, and going to keep growing. And maybe maybe the real detail point there is that the data has shown that when GDP per capita crosses certain thresholds and $2,000 per capita is one of the thresholds, you see a real exponential spike in things like protein consumption, reduced carbohydrate consumption, you know, m- more, more focus on health and nutrition and, and so on and so forth. And so that, that demand spike is, is really uh, going to be significant. And you kind of saw that in China if you, if you look back 20 years ago. So the demand side is, is one. I think the supply side is one that is not well understood at all uh, by most people. And, and part of it is because a country like India would consume today most of the food that it's actually producing. But but to give you a sense of supply, um, then just just looking at India alone, you know, India is a top three producer of most fruits and vegetables in the world. So it's it's about twenty fifteen to twenty percent of the world's fruits and vegetables are grown in India. Uh, it's a top three producer of rice, wheat, soy, cotton. Um, you know, sugar. It's number two in sugar, sugar cane. So you can kind of it's number one in dairy. Um, it's got the largest coastline for seafood. So it's this massive powerhouse of food production, but exports almost nothing because it's all consumed locally. And then we get to the demand, supply-demand imbalance. So despite being such a big producer and such a big consumer, it's also one of the most inefficient producers of food. Uh, Some of this translates also into Southeast Asia, especially places like Vietnam and Philippines. And so the inefficiency is down to low productivity, uh, so there's people that are not using the latest technology in seeds and fertilizers and irrigation and so on, and in wastage. So poor infrastructure leads to huge amount of wastage. So in India, thirty percent of all fresh food is wasted uh, just because of poor infrastructure, which is which is tremendous given how big the supply is. So if you if you take some of those very high level you know data points, this becomes really compelling as a as a theme. And then I would just, you know, add maybe there's layers of sort of, you know, decision making, you know, why why someone would do this, and maybe just to go one layer deeper is the sector remains largely in private hands across India and Southeast Asia. Whereas if you if you looked at if you looked at some of the more developed economies, you know, you could name some of the big ag guys, right? Everyone kind of knows the, you know, Archer Daniels and the Bungays and 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 maybe even the Nestle's, which are integrated backward. But if you look at India, Southeast Asia, you know you'd be hard pressed to name more than one or two companies that that are really dominating in the agri space. And again, I, I would you look at um, the China story and how you've got out of the top ten global agri companies now. You know China has three or four in them. They're one of the largest feed manufacturers now. They're buying. They bought Tyson, as as you know, in the U.S. big uh, poultry business, and they bought Syngenta, Chinese company, bought Syngenta, which is a big seed company. So I do think. Um, or you know maybe it's it's a more of a passion that we feel in India and Southeast Asia we want to help find and create the next sort of Nestle's and the next champions in the food and agri space.
1: And you have some family history in agribusiness, right?
2: That's right.
1: Was it your grandfather who uh, had a? a prominent seed company in India. That's right.
2: And the seed company is still around and it's now, you know, expanded internationally as well and it's being managed by my cousins who are, you know, third generation. And you know, it's an important point because really my grandfather when he founded the business, you know, he founded it with um, certain principles and certain goals. Profit was not the only motive. And so he did it to really help the farmers and to solve some real problems. That business is you know, a family business. So I've seen how it's developed. That business took in Monsanto as a minority shareholder, I think almost 20 years ago. And sort of just being around all of that has really been helpful for us at Mandala because essentially we're doing similar stuff. We're working with family businesses. We're coming in as an outside investor, You know, mostly US investor-backed investor so it's it's really been great from different perspectives, right, to help understand food and agri, to help understand, you know, family businesses and, and what they go through, especially second, third generations running these businesses, uh, and then just generally getting a good feel for uh, for the sector and how to invest.
0: So this is actually uh, a great segue into Mandala's own strategies for, for investing. Uh, what are the guiding principles that it has? I mean, clearly there there is a an influence that this uh, family history has but it would it would be uh perhaps you can you can flesh that out a little bit how exactly does does that background and, and that experience uh translate into a current uh, objectives
2: uh, yeah so you know our our strategy and our approach to investing is is in some ways constantly evolving and so we every time we we sit down and put our strategy on paper you know i feel you know we we tweak it constantly because we get new information we learn new things and so uh really we we call it constant evolution in our strategy we um, we have a playbook um, maybe that's the simplest way to talk about our strategy and there's four key tenets to the playbook the first is uh pieces development and i think we we touched on some of that uh earlier in the call um where we talk about um you know what what is a the big thesis that we think we want to go after? So let's say something like productivity. So we think you know in, anything that increases productivity, increases efficiency on the farm is a big play. and that that would make sense given the supply demand imbalance and all, all of that stuff. So there's a there's a huge opportunity um, uh, in finding the right themes. And for that we uh, really uh, use a lot of our network, our expertise, um, uh, to do a lot of research. To understand where where the big things are. The second part of our playbook is deal creation. And then the third is deal structure, and they're both kind of linked. I think the deal creation part is is unique because we spend a lot of time with the underlying companies uh, before we invest to understand what their drivers are, what their motivations are, and to really create a deal uh, when there might not be a deal in the first place. So we're really um we're not getting deals um shown to us, you know, by bankers on a platter. Um these are usually deals we have uh worked on for two years, uh, maybe even more, uh, getting the relationship built with the seller uh before we can actually go and structure the deal. And then on, on the deal structuring part. This is something we've we've been quite innovative in, in that we, even though it's a it's a traditional private equity fund, uh, we we do structure deals with a lot of, um, you know, quasi-equity, uh, so you know, debt-like feature with a lot of ratchets and uh, di- different sort of structures that. Protect us on the downside, especially with some volatility that agriculture can experience. And maybe, maybe at the end of it, we reduce our overall return profile, but then we also reduce our overall risk profile. And that's, that's something that's worked well for us. And then the last, um, the last step in our playbook is what we call business transformation. And that's really the, the key and something that's evolved the most. And this is where the sector specialists I mentioned earlier really play a big role. And that is really to what is our key value post investment. And that is, you know, really executing our 90 day plan, executing our long term strat plan, uh, extracting the maximum value, you know, positioning the company well for an exit. And those, those are things, um, especially as we're now further into our second fund, you know, we spend more and more of our time on that. In fact, our team today is bigger on the sector specialist side than it is on the investment team side. That's a very, very brief overview of the strategy. I think there's maybe a couple more components. We've got, you know, um, uh, a mandala impact component to this, which is our, our whole impact effort. We've got mandala innovations, which is our effort on the agri tech side. And then we've got two, two more, which become mandala analytics and mandala network. We hold very selected events, but we hold a few events where We invite different industry leaders to interact and we bring our portfolio companies together and exchange information so that we can sort of improve overall our network and also how our portfolio companies perform. It's a sort of complex strategy that keeps evolving and we keep trying to improve it. And ultimately, you know, it's all about enhancing the returns for our investors.
1: So I do a lot of uh, international work uh, with companies and with investors, uh, structuring deals And that can be a very emotional thing for companies, right? When uh, someone like you approaches your outside money, your outside expertise, it can be a little daunting, a little intimidating. So how are you received in those situations? Do you find that you have to spend a lot of time uh, developing rapport with the target companies, uh, you know, really building those relationships? Or would you say that uh, your method is to identify companies that really need uh, need the capital and need the expertise, and they're happy to have you work with them.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no real uh, straight answer. It's a bit of a balancing act, as you, as you probably know. Uh, I think it's a combination of maybe my my background, family background helps a little bit. I'm a pretty relaxed guy. We don't wear suits and uh, you know show up in fancy cars when we go meet these guys. We spend a lot of time. A very patient. We really look to help these companies by giving them a lot of advice even before we've invested. We bring a lot of our sector specialists and have them interact with the different team members so they can see the value that we add. And really, you know, we try to understand it, as I mentioned earlier, we try to understand what their issues are, what their motivations are, where they want to go with this thing long term, and then try to see where we can help them. You know, eventually the deal we propose, you know, is always a win-win. And so... Yeah, it just takes it just takes a while, and I think, and I, I said we take two years really to to get a deal, uh, you know, from from first meeting to actually getting a deal done, and that's really the time I think you know you need to spend with some of these guys before you know they can develop mutual respect, um, you know, uh, so so that you can actually get to a deal. So
1: you mentioned AgriTech just a little bit ago. Uh, how kind of interested in your general thoughts on agritech because that's obviously a, a massive component to you know, rooting out inefficiencies in the sector. Uh, so how should investors think of agritech investing and, and opportunities in this sector?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely the number one you know area in the food and agri value chain today, and I would say a majority of the money, more than 50 percent of new capital, is all flowing towards agritech, so it's a very relevant topic. I feel people should remember that, you know, tech has always been around in in agriculture. From, again, going to the value chain and going through the whole value chain from from inputs all the way to the retail end, just think of how much everything has evolved. You've got seed technology, which is, you know, grown by leaps and bounds. You know, uh, the farms are more productive than they ever were. You can look at, you know, tractors, which are, you know, entirely run by GPS and, you know, remoteless uh, or... Uh, you know, driverless uh, tractors, you've got all kinds of improved fertilizers, you've got better processing capacity. I mean, we, we own a Tetra Pak facility for one of our companies. And, you know, every few years, we double the speed of our machines, right, we can produce double the number of packets. And, you know, along the chain, there's, um, you know, food, food science, which has moved a lot. And my point here is just that technology is not a new thing. It's in, in food and agri, uh so one more example look at packaging i mean how you know it's grown by leaps and bounds right the innovation in packaging and this has been happening for 20 30 years so i think first of all that that's that's my first real comment is that agri tech as a whole is not a new area and and that's important to recognize and then the second is the 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 renewed interest in agri tech more recently is clearly because of you know data right so you you you've got increasing processing speeds you've got you know, telecom, wireless, telecom technology. So you know, we're now five G coming up. So all that has made data processing a lot faster, easier, more efficient, and that's driving a new wave of agri tech investing. Um, so that's that's important, you know, to to also recognize. Uh, and then the third point is, um, you know, where w- what is all this achieving? Right? W- what is the point of all the agri tech money that's that's going in and for me, I break it down into two key areas, mostly let's say I don't know it's tough to put a number, but I'd say more than 75 percent of money into agritech today is really going towards productivity or efficiency and 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 just to explain further, on the productivity side, it's really going into finding ways to improve yield, right How do you improve what you can produce so just think of all the agritech companies you've heard of, you know all on farm technologies like drones and sensors all of them are really driving what at the end they have to improve productivity otherwise a farmer will just not buy it and then the second is efficiency which is just reducing costs really or more from less right so you you know you move into a technology that like we we have a sugarcane business that we've invested in but we're taking the 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 fiber um, which is really was just burned for for fuel, and we're producing ethanol from it, right? Uh, and then we're producing some other specialty chemicals from it. So that that type of technology is also where a lot of money is going. I want to leave it there and keep it quite basic. I think that the cool stuff is is probably another another session. You know, the cellular meat and all of that stuff. I think there's there's very little truly disruptive agri tech, and I would put cellular meat in that. That's that's really innovative and can be game-changing. I would say majority of the agri-tech out there is just focused on productivity and efficiency. That's
1: fascinating. Yes, we definitely would love to talk with you more about the cellular meat and other innovations you're seeing, like you said, true innovations uh, in a future time when we can talk again. What are your thoughts on the cannabis sector? I know I uh, we, when we had our initial call that discussed this, I mentioned it to you and you're in the middle of Southeast Asia, and Fred and I do quite a bit of international work, and we get inquiries quite often, uh, you know, to or from the U.S. Uh, and, and often dealing with Southeast Asia. So what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Um, you know, do you think it will be as big in, in Southeast Asia as it is showing to be in Europe and North America? You know, what kind of general thoughts would be great?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to start with, we've, we've invested in a company in the U.S. called Arcadia Biosciences. Which has, um, which I think is, is today, you know, the leading CBD seed company. Again, I go back to the value chain. So, you know, if you understand the value chain of CBD and hemp, that makes life a little bit easier to think about where to invest, what's going to happen to it and so on. And, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. We, um, again, this is, this is my, my opinion. So could be, could be wrong, but when we, um, look at the value chain, um, you know, the maximum value today uh, will, will be with the seed company and with the brand, right? So who, whoever can come up with a retail product that consumers can associate with and so on. And and you can argue that, will that be a new player or will that be, you know, Pepsi just putting CBD infused Pepsi or Coke, putting CBD infused Coke, right? So that's, that's an interesting area to, to talk about. But then on the seed side, which is really the, the basis for the CBD is some interesting points. So if you look at other crops like soybean, uh, which is the most developed crop, right? You can get uh, the entire, you know, genomic sequence of soybean. You know, it's been, you know, studied every which way. You've got, uh, you know, three layers of gene stacking into it. You've got, you've got so much work done on it that when you, um, and you can work with, you know, universities in the U S, which have done tons and tons of work. When you look at CBD or, you, you know, um, hemp, there is almost no work. In, in fact, there is no work because it was, it was illegal to do any work, right? So when we, um, so Arcadia, for example, and even my own family business, we work with a lot of universities in the U S for research, like the big sort of agri universities and none of the, there, there's no database there for any, um, uh, you know, uh, any material on, on what, what's in there. Uh, how do you develop um, these these seed technologies in CBD for for CBD enhancement or for hemp? And what we're finding with Arcadia is that Arcadia is able to, through its relationships and being a pretty you know well established seed company and seed technology company, is able to really go right to the beginning and start building up this expertise. And the the real challenge here or the real interesting play here will be to see how quickly do the majors get into this. And if the majors today, today, the majors are not getting into it. So if, if the Monsanto bears and Gentas, you know, are not looking into this, who is going to take the lead? And it's got to be a real seed company, right? It can't be uh, guys in their basements who used to grow marijuana, right? And, and then you have regulation, which is coming in, which, which expects things to be, you know, re- really proper, for example, you know, the CBD content and, and all of this stuff. And it's, it's obviously an evolving, um, evolving regulatory framework as well. So I um you know it's, it's a, maybe I'm not being too coherent because it's a exciting space, and uh, there's a lot to cover, but I think the seed guys really hold the key here in terms of transforming the space um, because they will be able to produce you know more consistent varieties to very basic technologies like hybrid, you know which which again is not there it's all all sort of homegrown and then I, I don't think the processing guys, which were today, today all the attention is on the processing guys. I don't think the processing guys really have much to offer. Um, it's, it's very commoditized because there's no real technology in that. Um, uh, and the retail guys, you know, are still very small. I mean, everyone's still trying to make their brand. Um, and you, you know, I, I'm not an expert on, on the brand side. So I wonder, you know, if it'll be a new brand or if you're better off just selling. CBD to a Coke or a Pepsi, right um, and let them let them go and do, do that thing. So that's that's really my, my feeling on the overall industry. again, you know I think it's a much longer discussion uh, but as it pertains to Southeast Asia, I mean look, Thailand is very, very keen on this, and, and there's a lot of uh, a push straight from, straight from the government to, to encourage uh, massive amounts of this you know money to come in, technology to come in. I I think there is no doubt that there's significant health benefits of CBD so it's just it's just a matter of time I feel before this gets uh, more and more accepted and gets put more and more into you know daily products and also medicinal products and just as a last comment I mean with with corona and with stress levels very high I mean I think you know C- CBD with its um, you know qualities of you know helping sl- with sleep and and all of this could could really be um, it
0: just could really be its time. Hude, just following up on on your your comments, you, you brought up universities, and, and just as a as a matter of curiosity, um, what are some of the the leading academic centers when it comes to agriculture? Obviously, there are universities that that, that come to mind, if if nothing else, because their their names uh, prominently feature the word uh, agriculture. But I'm just wondering if perhaps there there are some some important players out there that might not be so so obvious, just as a matter of uh, general knowledge.
2: Well, I so I I'm not I don't know all the names. I just know some that we worked with in the past, and I think. You know, on the West Coast, you've got tons, and and Berkeley is one where we actually work with closely in our seed company in Davis, uh, which is in UC Davis. Has you know, we've licensed CRISPR from University of California, so that's a that's a big one. In the East Coast, Cornell is probably the biggest, uh, I think, in the agri space. They've got joint research programs with us actually, and then the, the all the Midwestern guys, uh, you know, Illinois and 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 so on are are very big in agri, and I think that's that's the more obvious, you know, Corn Belt uh, type of universities. Texas actually does, this, and does some of it, we've just not worked with them, but they're they actually quite advanced on some of their technologies as well and what they produce there in R&D. I think they get huge amounts of funding, a lot of universities, from the government for, for agri-research, and really those, the, the, I think it's some of the best in the world, really.
0: Let's talk about impact investing. First of all, what is it? For our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, and then how does Mandala approach um, impact investing?
2: Yeah, so impact investing is just a massive space. I think uh, everyone has a different view on what it means. You know, m- maybe the simple way to think about it is uh, again from you know a pure charity perspective, right? You wanna you wanna give you know a dollar to someone to eat. That's impact and. can you can sort of keep moving on the curve making uh, more commercial decisions and maybe lesser and lesser impact i suppose and all the way to say like doing a buyout of a cigarette company right Uh, and and then the key is to maybe find a sweet spot where you're getting a commercial return as well as making impact and then what is the impact you're making again is subjective Uh, you know the united nations have come up with these sdgs social development goals Which are really helpful, at least in terms of saying, okay, I'm, I'm making, you know, I'm I'm making an impact on these one or two SDGs or these five SDGs. And the SDGs are things like, you know, improved water or equality or uh, women participation in labor, things like that. And, and, you know, it's very easy to sort of check this out. I think the, the, the confusing bit is people like to feel they're making an impact and investors, especially or fund investors, are quite good at dressing up, or they they call it greenwashing, their strategies to make it look like they're doing impact because really everything you do has some impact. So, you know, real estate companies are saying they're impact uh, investors now because they're building, you know, uh, solar roofs on top of the building. So it's it's relative. So what, what does Mandala look at? So first of all, given that we're in food and agri, impact is quite natural we we don't even need to try really and we're making massive impact across huge number of the sdgs i mentioned so you know because we're more upstream and midstream in in the food and agri value chain we touch farmers which is all rural which is mostly women farmers we touch the environment we touch water usage you know we touch new quality issues and so on so impact is naturally a big thing for what we do The the area where we differentiate or how we think about it is um, quite simply scalable and sustainable impact. And what that really means for us is finding companies where our investment is being used to create impact that can be sustained beyond our investment. So really companies that can continue to shine, if you like, after we've gone out of it. And so our investment is just there to help them uh, but really, the impact is has to be sustainable, and and it comes down to cumulative impact. So if I invest in something, it should not just be a one-time impact, right? So uh, I'm trying to build, I'm trying to invest in a company that will build something, uh, a, a factory or or a processing plant that will keep giving back, so it'll keep having impact. So that's the sustainable part of it, and the scalable part of it is. We want to make sure that we can make impact over a large, large scale, over over a large number of people, over a big footprint, and that has to do with finding companies that are relatively large. So we don't want to, you know, I think I, I use this example, maybe it's not not that appropriate, but you know, basket weaving in in a small village somewhere is um, is great, but it's just not scalable. It's too it's too small. That's not what we do as a fund, and. In both scalable and sustainable impact, it really comes down to finding companies with good business models and good unit economics. And so, if, if the businesses are sound, uh, when we put our money there, the impact that they create is both scalable and sustainable. And that's really what we're after. Um, and then, just the last one minute on it is, we um, you know we track our impact in a very numerical way. So we have a report that's available on our on our website which is, you know, we have proprietary formulas, we actually take our impact, we try to convert it into dollars. So for every dollar invested, what is a dollar impact we're generating? And then we accumulate that dollar impact because that's how it should be. We, we expect it to be cumulative impact. And um, and we, we generate an SROI. So you've heard of ROI, which is return on investment. So we generate a social return on investment and, and that's kind of what we report to our investors.
1: Uday, it's been great having you on the show with us. We really appreciate your time, appreciate your insights and uh, hope that we can see you again uh, on another episode in the future to dig in more and some uh, areas we mentioned today. We always like to close our episodes with recommendations so that our listeners and, and Fred and I as well can, uh, can learn what you've been reading, what, uh, what you've seen lately, what you recommend so we can get more information, we can really get a good feel uh, you know, either in this region or, uh, or other regions, whatever you think might be uh, really relevant to us today.
2: So one of the books that I've read recently, um, and I really recommend it to pretty much everyone I meet, is a book called 40 Chances, Finding Hope in a Hungry World by Howard Buffett. This is Warren Buffett's son, you know, who's actually quite accomplished on his own. Um, I think he was on the board of ADM, on the board of a Pivot Irrigation Business. But um, it's actually a great book because it, it really straddles uh, impact, uh, agriculture investing, emerging market investing. And it's really inspiring. You know, it's, it's one of my favorite books in the space, and I would really strongly recommend that.
1: And Fred, what do you have for us?
0: I'd like to recommend an excellent piece called A Woman Called Hey and that's um, hey as in hey how are you not uh, it's it's not a not a foreign word but the the article does talk about about China it's a it's a sad uh, at times infuriating at times uplifting story about a woman who belongs to an ethnic minority group in China who is who was kidnapped basically to be to be married to a man in a in a, in a different province um, this this is um, unfortunately a phenomenon that has been around in China for for a while and and, and remains to, to to this day uh, part of what made this particular story particularly interesting but also sadder is the fact that because this woman belonged to to an ethnic minority she she didn't really speak mandarin and was unable to 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 learn it over the years so that made it harder even for her to contemplate making her way back to her village but um what happened was so over time once her her husband died uh, her daughter decided to 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 try to help her uh, find her her home village and it's it's a fascinating story it was basically a, a crowdsourced kind of solution where they were talking to people back in the home province and they were able to narrow down the areas from from which this this woman had 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 come I don't want to reveal too much um but it, it's a it's a it's a great read really one of the best things I've read in a, in a while. The author is Zhang Yue. I don't know what the tones are, so just going to try to keep a neutral opinion there. Uh, translated uh, masterfully by Matt Turner, and that came out on November 28th. So again, a woman called Hey, What about you, Jonathan?
1: What can you recommend this week? My recommendation this week is a Nikkei Asia webinar that they put on a couple of weeks ago called The New Tech Supply Chain. I really like this webinar. It was about an hour and a half long, had four different staff writers who covered technology in Asia, including one based in Vietnam, one based in Taiwan, one based in mainland China. And it really gave a good insight into what it took China to build its impressive supply chain now in high technology, you know, in the last 20 years and what it would take for competing Asian countries to replace that supply chain or at least to get up to par where they can, for instance, order a part and get it in a matter of hours or days as opposed to a matter of weeks, which is what we're looking at right now. So I highly recommend that if you are considering relocating some of your supply chain from China to other parts of Asia. uh, Really easy to listen to and uh, quite a, a good webinar. Well, Uday, we want to thank you again for being with us uh, we we wish you well. Certainly, we'll keep track of what you're up to on social media and uh, look forward to catching up with you again.
2: It's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for listening patiently to me talk. And uh, yeah, look forward to catching up.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.